I'm excited uh, to begin this new series of messages today, and um, we're going to be asking some big, hairy, <laughs> audacious questions, the answers to which could greatly impact the direction of your life. The first question we'll answer is related to the significance of Easter, and the significance of Easter is the most significant thing in the history of significance. Today's question is this, did Jesus really die and rise again? A secondary question, which we will also answer, is the question of why it matters. Let me start by saying that if Jesus didn't actually die on a cross or didn't truly rise again, Christianity is bankrupt and your time is being wasted as we speak. Other than the Krispy Kreme, that was probably worth it. Conversely, if Jesus really did die for our sins and he conquered death by rising again, then the core beliefs of Christianity are based on historical fact, not just wishful thinking. And this gives us a true and firm foundation upon which to build a reasonable faith, particularly in our hope for eternal life. So let's get right into it. We're actually going to answer four questions this morning. First, did Jesus really die on the cross? Second, what does his death mean for me? Third, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And fourth, what does his resurrection mean for me? So first, did Jesus really die on the cross? Believe it or not, the evidence for the resurrection is so difficult to refute that cynics have been forced to theorize that Jesus never actually died on the cross. That's their answer to the fact that Jesus was definitely found to be alive after the crucifixion. They say, well, since the evidence is clear that Jesus was alive after the cross, perhaps he never really died on it. Some have called this the swoon theory. For the record, that this is what many Muslims have been led to believe, while other skeptics have just kind of sort of come up with it on their own. The most important thing to know is that this theory only surfaced centuries after the crucifixion took place. Apparently, during the first few centuries surrounding the crucifixion, this theory simply never occurred to anyone, not even to those who wanted to destroy Christianity. For hundreds of years, books were written against Christianity, yet no one ever suggested that maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Why is that important? Well, it's a matter of principle that historical fact is always established by the evidence that is dated closest to the event in question. And for as many 600 years, every historian, every opponent of Christianity, and everyone who had anything whatsoever to say about it assumed Jesus died on a Roman cross. You might not know that there were those who tried to make a case against Christianity from the very beginning. And even from the second century, Christian apologists like Justin Martyr wrote to refute them. Yet in all of those cases against Christianity, nobody ever thought to say, maybe Jesus didn't actually die. And you see, the further removed we are from any historical event, the easier it is to throw out less and less likely theories as to what might have actually happened. This is known as historical revisionism. In my view, one of the biggest problems with modern education, especially in universities. Regardless, even liberal scholars don't usually try to argue against the historical fact that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion for the reason that I'm putting forth. Centuries passed with everyone understanding that Jesus died on a cross. This has been proven as surely as any accepted fact of ancient history. Jesus dying on a cross is not even a particularly Christian belief. Jews believe this. Many, though not all, Muslims believe this. Hindus believe this. Virtually everyone with any kind of historical education believes that Jesus died on a cross. This belief did not develop centuries later. 
but was understood from the very beginning. For instance, first century historians like Josephus and Tacitus, themselves non-believers, recorded that Jesus of Nazareth died by Roman crucifixion in the first century AD. And yet today, <clears throat> some folks are still swayed by the swoon theory that I mentioned. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus basically passed out on the cross and was later awakened by the coolness of the tomb. Again, the evidence for the resurrection is so strong that people in the last few centuries have theorized maybe Jesus was never actually all the way dead. Now, besides the fact that this theory was never even considered until centuries later, another problem with it is that crucifixion was simply not survivable. Not one person in history survived Roman crucifixion. If we're going to use reason and rationale in terms of what we believe or do not believe about Jesus, then let us go wherever the evidence takes us. The evidence always leads every serious scholar to the same conclusion, Jesus died on a Roman cross. Why then would I belabor the point? Because after hearing the evidence for the resurrection, those who struggle to believe such a thing will tend to gravitate back toward the idea that perhaps Jesus never really died on the cross. This is also why author Lee Strobel spends a good amount of time defending the fact that Jesus died on the cross in his book, The Case for Christ. I challenge any skeptic to read this book, and if you would like a copy, I'll buy you one. Just ask for it on your connection card, and I'll, I'll send one to your door. I'll mail it to you, free of charge. Might even throw in the case for faith. Just let me know. Let me read a quote taken from Strobel's interview of the respected doctor and medical researcher, Alex Alexander Methrell. Strobel's asking Dr. Methrell basically to prove that Jesus actually died on the cross. After about eight pages of somewhat gruesome medical evidences from Methrell, Strobel asked the good doctor to sum it up for him, and he writes, but still I pushed him further. Is there any possible way, any possible way that Jesus could have survived this? Methrell shook his head and pointed his finger at me for emphasis. Absolutely not, he said. Remember that he was already in hypovolemic shock from the massive blood loss even before the crucifixion started. He couldn't possibly have faked his death because you can't fake the inability to breathe for long. Besides, the spear thrust to his heart would have settled the issue once and for all, and the Romans weren't about to risk their own death by allowing him to walk away alive. Dr. Methrell certainly doesn't stand alone in his assessment. There's a well-respected circle of physicians who have studied this issue and a uh, just come to the same conclusions. Among them is Dr. Uh, William D. Edwards, whose article in the Journal of American Medical, Medical Association stated, clearly the weight of the historical and medical evidence indicates that Jesus was dead before the wound to his side was even inflicted. Accordingly, interpretations based on the assumption that Jesus did not die on the cross appear to be at odds with modern medical knowledge. By the way, Jewish burial techniques would have likely killed Jesus anyway, had he not already been dead. Uh, he would have almost certainly suffocated in the wrappings. But I won't spend any more time on the part that doesn't really need proving for even most of those who are skeptical of the rest of the story. The fact that Jesus died on a Roman cross is not what most people find difficult to believe. However, I ask that you remember how you were in agreement that he died when we get to the compelling evidence that he was later found to be alive. But before we move on to what most people have trouble believing, let's ask a second question about the death of Christ, which is this. What does his death mean for me? Assuming you accept the historical fact that Jesus died on a cross, the more pertinent question is why his death matters more than any of a gazillion other people who died on Roman crosses. I can only tell you what the Bible says about that. 
The Bible says Jesus died for you. What does that mean? And is it true? And if it is true, then how are you to respond? That's the heart of the issue. What's the big deal about the cross? Everybody dies, right? Lots of people have died as martyrs for what they believed in. Many people have been tortured to death in terrible ways. Even other good people like Jesus. Even amazing people. Why should we focus so much attention on the death of one historical figure? Why do we make so much of it? And even sing songs about the cross of Jesus. There are two major factors that make the death of Jesus Christ so different. First, his identity. The death of Jesus was different because he is different. Because of who he was. The Bible calls him the son of God. Which is a phrase intended to communicate the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. God in human form. By the way, this divine nature of Christ was demonstrated long before the resurrection. Jesus was born of a virgin. He never made a mistake. He never sinned. His miraculous works were well documented and are unmatched in history. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies or predictions that were made centuries earlier about the Christ. This one who Isaiah prophesied would be called, quote, mighty God. In fact, Jesus perfectly fulfilled every single prophecy, many of which required divine power. Some of which required that he die the very kind of death he died. The death of Jesus is different because he is different. One ancient historian records that even Napoleon Bonaparte said this about Jesus. I know men and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every other person in the world, there's no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. The second reason that Christ's death is different is found in his purpose. Jesus died for a particular reason. A cosmic-sized reason. He died for every single person in the world, past, present, and future. The Bible says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been, been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's judgment. He was sent to die for us. His secret ambition was to give his life for us. But you might ask, why would I need someone to die for me? This is the tough part for some. This is where it's hard um, for people who aren't at the end of their rope. This is where it's a challenge for those who don't feel like they really ever did anything that bad. I'm a good person, you know. I mean, I try to keep the Ten Commandments, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I do the best that I can. I'm a lot better than a lot of people. This is where we must understand that the Bible says in Romans 3.23, for example, that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. This is where we must understand that one sin, one broken commandment, one selfish act is enough to keep us separated from a perfect and holy God and that absolutely no one is good enough to find peace with God on their own. Somewhere down deep inside, there's a voice speaking this truth in your heart. You've probably heard it before. This voice says precisely this. You need a Savior. Every human heart longs to be saved. All the best stories are about Messiah figures. 
We have something in us that knows we need a Savior. That's because every one of us needs to be saved. We're not right before God. We are broken to the core. The Bible says this so beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for what? For our sin. So that we could be made right with God through Christ. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And in Colossians 2, the Bible says, You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature, which was, which was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all our sins. He canceled the record that contained the charges against us. I think we just sang that. He took it and destroyed it by nailing it to Christ's cross. It was your sin and my sin that put Jesus on the cross. He came to die for us. Why? So that we could be made right with God through him. Now, let me ask you a question. How have you responded to this, the greatest gift and the greatest sacrifice that has ever been made? You have responded, haven't you? Surely if God came to earth to die so that you could be forgiven of your sins, you would have responded. I feel sure everyone in this room has heard about this great sacrifice of Jesus before. How did you respond when you heard? Did you reject this gift of God? Did you ignore it? Did you table the notion for further thought? Did you just sort of say, well, I hope that's true? Did you heed the inner conviction of the Holy Spirit to reciprocate or respond in kind to this incredible thing that the God of creation had done for you? Did you really believe in such a way as to have the direction and purpose of your life changed forever? Well, here we are again, and God is speaking. You have a choice. There's always, always a choice. You can reject. You can ignore. You can put it off. You can just kind of hope. Or you can do what I did many years ago. Admit that your sin nailed Jesus to the cross and respond with devotion by trusting in him as your savior, as your forgiver, and asking him to be the leader or the Lord of your life. Will you reject him again today? Will you ignore him again? Will you hope for another chance later? Or will you once and for all accept his gift of forgiveness and trust in Jesus Christ to be your savior? Maybe somebody's thinking, hey, not so fast. You're still not sure about the identity of Jesus, and therefore you still are not so sure that his death meant anything special for you. Was Jesus really God in the flesh, perfect and holy, and therefore uniquely able to pay the price for the sins of the world? Was Jesus more than simply another religious figure who had some interesting thoughts to say? To answer those questions, all we really need to do is answer the third question which is this, did Jesus really rise from the dead? This is the stumbling block for most people when it comes to the gospel, not as often that Jesus died on the cross, but the idea that he rose from the dead. And yet the Bible makes clear that without the resurrection, the cross means nothing. 
The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. The resurrection is the foundation of Christianity. If it's false, then Jesus was simply another man and Christianity comes tumbling down. If it's true, then Jesus was who he said he was, God in the flesh, and Christianity becomes not just another religion, but a living and loving relationship with the God who made us. That said, let's admit that it is difficult to believe that a man came back to life. And we're not talking about a near-death experience or coming out of a coma here. We're talking about a man who was torn to shreds, who bled out, who had no medical assistance, who had no life support hooked up to his body, a man who was laid in a tomb without food or water, wrapped tightly in cloths for the better part of three days. When we really think about this man coming back to life, even many Christians occasionally struggle with nagging doubts. We've probably all attended enough funerals to know the finality of death. People who die do not come back to us. We have seen their bodies, even fixed up by the local mortuary, however talented they may be. It is very clear that our dead will not be coming back to us. You've seen it. It's a painful memory for many of us. But all of us need to get this right now. That permanent look of deadness is exactly how Jesus looked dead too. Lee Strobel put it this way. As a journalist at the Chicago Tribune, I saw plenty of dead bodies, but I had never seen anyone come back to life. That was the stuff of fantasies, mythology, and legend. After all, we live in a scientific age. Believing the idea of someone being resurrected from the dead was simply no longer tenable. I thought it would take only a short time to dismiss that story, the resurrection of Christ, as a hoax, a myth, or a misunderstanding. Instead, the more I delved into the historical evidence, the more convinced I became that Jesus did return to life on the third day. Based on the evidence, I abandoned atheism and embraced Jesus as my forgiver, leader, and friend. Apparently, there is a case to be made. A case which, even understood, when understood, has the power to convince a skeptical realists like Lee Strobel and others less likely to believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. Now, if there is a case to be made, perhaps we should look for help from a good lawyer. And specifically, a defense attorney might be our best bet. What if we could find help from even the most successful defense attorney in history? Who do you think that would be? F. Lee Bailey? Bailey? Uh, Johnny Cochran? (laughs) If only Mason and Matlock weren't fictional, maybe we'd enlist their help. But in real history, do you know who is the most successful defense attorney of all time? Well, let's read what it says on page 547 of the Guinness Book of World Records. Most successful lawyer, Sir Lionel Lacou, who succeeded in getting his 245th successive murder charge acquittal by January 1, 1985. Nobody in the world has come close to replicating this feat. Lacou won 245 murder trials in a row. Many have actually called him the real-life Perry Mason. What skills, what skills do you think this man needed in order to rise to that unprecedented level of courtroom success? Certainly he must be an intelligent person. Anything but a blind faith guy, right? Think about what they do. 
He must be a critical thinker. And more than anything else, this person must be a world-class expert on what does or does not constitute reliable and persuasive evidence. All of that describes Laku, who also served as a justice on Great Britain's highest court and was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth. Wouldn't it be interesting to get an opinion from an expert like Sir Laku on the evidence for the resurrection, specifically the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, we're in luck. In fact, during his own spiritual journey, Laku turned his expertise onto the question of whether the resurrection passes the test of legal evidence or not. And here's the conclusion he ultimately reached. <clears throat> I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. Here we have the most successful attorney in the world applying the test of legal evidence to the case of Jesus Christ and concluding with absolute confidence that his resurrection is proven beyond reasonable doubt. And then after his investigation, Laku did the most logical thing he could do. He gave his life to Christ. That's right. Not before. Not before. But after his investigation of the resurrection, Sir Lionel Laku became a follower of Jesus. His skepticism turned to faith based on the evidence. But that true story probably won't convince anyone because after all, we aren't looking at the evidence that Laku was looking at. All right then, let's take a look at some of the historical evidence. And by that I mean the kind of evidence that leads rational people to conclude that this or that actually happened in history. We're going to briefly explore some of the facts that led people like Laku, Strobel, and many, many others to believe that Jesus really did what he said he would do beforehand, that he really came back to life on the third day. Now, I always try to give credit if I'm not coming up with something from scratch, and so please note that I am borrowing these three points from Lee Strobel. I'm actually not sure that they weren't said before him, but as far as I know, they're from Lee Strobel, these three points, and of course, I'm putting my own spin on them. But I'm going to summarize the evidence for the resurrection with three E's. The first E stands for early. The early accounts. The accounts of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection date back very close to the time when they occurred. For instance, a statement of belief recited in the fledgling church says, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This written creed has been dated back to as early as two or three years after the crucifixion. That's right, not two or three centuries, two or three years. That's how quickly thousands of people were reciting that statement in public worship. That's how soon belief in the resurrection was codified. Two or three years after the crucifixion, the church was publicly testifying to the resurrection as a body in worship. This fact completely refutes the modern day assertion that the resurrection was a legend or a myth developing over long periods of time. This is simply not the case. Experts agree there was nowhere near enough time for legend or myth to develop between his death and the point when thousands of people believed that Jesus had risen. Legend is built layer by layer uh, through generations of retelling stories, adding a little color here and there to make the story better. Legend requires that eyewitnesses are no longer alive to recount or to correct the tale. But when the Apostle Paul mentioned that Jesus had appeared to witnesses after his resurrection, he specifically stated that many of them were still alive. They were still around while the New Testament was being written. They were still available for cross-examination. 
The apostle wrote, after that, Jesus was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died by now. The absolute fact, absolute fact is that belief in the resurrection of Christ didn't come centuries later in the form of legend. The accounts were early, during the lifetime of those who were actually there. This is a strong piece of historical evidence to support the truth that Jesus really did rise again. The second E stands for the word empty. The empty tomb of Jesus. During his trial, the chief accuser of Jesus was the Jewish high priest at that time whose name was Caiaphas. Everybody say, boo, boo, Caiaphas, bad guy. Caiaphas is the one who accused Jesus of blasphemy and handed him over to Pilate to be killed. Just a few years ago, archaeologists were digging in Jerusalem and they managed to uncover the burial grounds of Caiaphas and his family. But though his accuser's grave has been found, no one has ever covered, uncovered the body of Jesus Christ. Don't you think his enemies would have tried to find his body right away? Through all of those early years of persecution for both Jews and Romans, all trying to find a way to end this dangerous sect becoming known as Christianity, don't you think they would have tried to find the body of Jesus since no one questioned the fact that he died? And what would have happened had they found his body? Well, they would have ended Christianity right then and there, proving that Jesus was still dead. Scripture is proven to be historically accurate. It tells us that the body of Jesus laid to rest in a tomb belonging to Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Jewish council. The tomb was sealed and placed under heavy guard, and yet it was discovered empty on Easter morning by several women. By the way, the fact that the ancient biblical documents say women discovered the empty tomb lends even more credibility to these accounts. Not just because women are more credible. There's another reason. More credibility because, sadly, women had low status in Jewish society at that time. They didn't even legally qualify as witnesses in court. And so if the disciples were making up this story, surely they would have claimed that men discovered the empty tomb rather than women. It's just one, of, one more indication that the writers were completely committed to accurately recording what actually happened. Let me boil this all down and please hear this. Historically, no one ever claimed that the tomb of Jesus was anything but empty. Think about this. Even his opponents, the Jewish leaders, admitted that the body was no longer in the tomb. The Bible says the Jewish leaders tried to bribe the guards to say that the disciples stole the body while they were asleep, which of course makes no sense. How would the guards have known what happened if they were sleeping? But the bigger point right now is, when the disciples declared the tomb was empty, the opponents of Jesus didn't respond by saying, no, it isn't. They didn't say, you've got the wrong tomb. You know, his body's over there. Instead, they admitted it was true. The tomb was empty. They just didn't know how it happened. So the question becomes, how did the body of Jesus vacate the tomb? Let's reel out some possibilities. The Romans wouldn't have taken the body. They wanted Jesus dead. Besides, Pilate had sentenced Christ to crucifixion, which meant death. To find that he was alive would have led to rolling heads, according to Roman law. The last thing the Romans wanted was a martyr that a group of Jews could claim had come back to life. The Jewish leaders had no motive to hide the body. Rather, they remembered that Jesus claimed he would rise again and did everything they could to make sure no one could claim that he had done so. That's why they asked for the guards and the heavy stone. 
Actually, either the Jewish leaders or the Romans would have loved to have paraded the lifeless body of Jesus down Main Street in Jerusalem if they could have. They knew that would have instantly killed this growing Christian movement. They were expending so much energy trying to destroy, but they couldn't produce the body because they didn't know where it was. The tomb was empty. That leaves his followers. But the disciples had nothing to gain and everything to lose by stealing the body of Jesus. Why would they want to live a life of deprivation and suffering and then be tortured to death for what they knew to be a lie? If this had been a charade, certainly one of them would have eventually told the truth. Someone at some point would have admitted to the whereabouts of the body of Jesus and it would have all ended right there. His followers could have hoped for no political gain at the time. No monetary motive, no fame was going to come their way, no power. All they got was persecution, torture, and death for like the next several centuries. Yet the tomb remained empty and Christ's enemies were fresh out of leads as to where the body could possibly be. As Hank Hanegraaff puts it, early Christianity simply could not have survived an identifiable tomb containing the corpse of Christ. The enemies of Christ could have easily put an end to the charade by displaying the body. So friends, the unanimous testimony of history is that the tomb was empty on Easter Sunday. And the only explanation for the empty tomb that fits the facts is that Jesus walked out of it on the third day. Let's talk about the 30, which stands for eyewitnesses. The eyewitnesses, not only was the tomb empty, but over a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared alive to dozens Different times, uh, over at least 500 and pe- 515 people that he appeared to. He spent time with men and women, believers and doubters, sometimes with groups, sometimes with individuals, sometimes indoors, sometimes outdoors. As Luke put it, to these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. Speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And Peter also attests to the fact that Christ had appeared and proven himself to many witnesses. One such testimony comes in Acts chapter 2 where Peter said, God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses to this fact. Hundreds of witnesses had experienced the resurrected Jesus and they had not simply seen him in some kind of ghostly vision. The resurrected Christ talked with people, ate with them, even invited one skeptic to put his his fingers in the nail scars in his hands to verify that it was really him. More than 515 people. That's a lot of witnesses. That's a lot of eyewitnesses. I don't know that there have been any crimes committed or any trials that I know of where there were 515 eyewitnesses. We need to stop and put this into perspective. Think about it this way. If we were holding a trial to determine the facts concerning the resurrection, and if we were to call to the witness stand every eyewitness who personally, not secondhand, personally encountered the resurrected Jesus, and if we cross-examined each of them for only 15 minutes, and if we went around the clock without a break, 24 hours a day, how long do you think we'd be sitting here? The first-hand eyewitness testimony would continue through today and tonight, through all day Monday and Monday night, through all day Tuesday and Tuesday night, through all day Wednesday and Wednesday night, through all day Thursday and Thursday night, and we'd be listening to the last eyewitness account of the resurrected Christ at about 6.30 on Friday evening. Now, if you sat and listened to eyewitnesses for all of those days and nights in a row, do you think you might be convinced at that point? I think so. And look at what happened to the disciples after these appearances of Christ. Before the resurrection, they were dejected and despondent because they thought their leader was gone forever. Peter denied knowing Christ three times. They fled and hid. They ran for their lives. They didn't know what to do. 
or what to believe. But even extra-biblical historians wrote that after Easter, those same disciples were out on the streets, even traveling all over the world, boldly proclaiming Jesus is alive. That was their primary message, by the way, that Jesus rose again. Suddenly, these once cowardly men and women were transformed into people filled with courage, willing to fearlessly proclaim to their own deaths that Jesus had conquered the grave. They died before they would deny he rose. Now, let me get real about something when it comes to martyrs and what it proves. It absolutely is true that lots of people have died for their faith throughout history. That doesn't prove their faith was right. And this was true of the 9-11 terrorists, sadly enough. Why were they willing to, do, to die that way? Because they sincerely believed they would immediately go to be with God, their God, in paradise. You know, that's scary. But what the disciples did was very different from that. Think about this. People will die for their religious beliefs if they are convinced those beliefs are true, even if they're actually false, like those terrorists. But people will not die for their religious beliefs if they know those beliefs are a lie. The disciples were in the unique position of history to know firsthand, to know for sure whether Jesus had really risen from the dead or not. They either account, encountered him or they didn't. They either talked to him and ate with him or they didn't. They told the world that they had witnessed his resurrection, that he really was alive and that they knew because they had been with him. But they certainly would not have given their lives for a hoax of their own invention. They would not have died for what they knew to be a lie. As Dr. Simon Greenleaf, this famous royal professor of law at Harvard, put it, as one after another was put to a miserable death, the survivors only prosecuted their work with increased vigor and resolution. They had every possible motive to review carefully the grounds of their faith and the evidences of the great facts and truths which they asserted. It was therefore impossible that they could have persisted in affirming the truths they had narrated had not Jesus actually risen from the dead and had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. Friends, the most successful lawyer of all time, Sir Lionel Lucku, was right. The evidence is absolutely overwhelming. The three E's add up to a powerful equation. Early accounts plus an empty tomb plus eyewitness testimony equals reasonable certainty that Jesus is, in fact, alive. This brings us to the last question. What does this resurrection mean for me? Is the fact that Jesus rose from the dead pertinent today? Is this culturally relevant? Does it really matter for this millennium? And if so, how? Why does it matter whether or not Jesus came back to life? Have you ever thought about that? Well, let's see if we can understand this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where it says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, died in Christ, are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we're to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You get that? The first fruits of those who have died, the first of many who will rise again. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die because of the sin, so in Christ all will be made alive. Christianity without a risen Christ is completely, completely empty and hopeless. Why would we follow a dead man? Would we hope for more than he got? Death. But since Christ did overcome death, we can hope to overcome our own death by the same power. Jesus demonstrated power over death by rising again. He overcame death for himself, and he overcame it 
for those who place their trust in Him. In fact, that is exactly what He promised. Just, would these promises really mean anything if Jesus had never risen from the dead? No, we wouldn't even have it. It'd be like, oh, we forgot about that part. What He promised, look at this, He promised. Who says this, by the way? Who's walking around on earth and says something like what I'm about to read? I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, 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 even though they die like everyone else, will live again. Are you kidding me? They are given eternal life. For what? For believing in me. And they will never perish. Which speaks of eternal death. Alfred Hitchcock tells a story. If you don't like the story, don't blame me. Blame Alfred Hitchcock. What does he know about stories? He tells a story of a woman who murdered her husband years ago and was sentenced to life in prison. She vowed that somehow, some way, she'd escape. As her prison bus approached the penitentiary, she saw an old man, another prisoner, covering up a grave in a small cemetery outside the prison walls. Right then and there, she hatched a plot. Once inside, she befriended this prisoner. He was going blind and needed cataract surgery. I'll get you the money for your surgery if you'll help me escape, she said. And he agreed. Here was the plan. The next time she heard the bell toll, which indicated an inmate uh, had died, she would sneak down to the workroom where he made the casket, slide inside with the body, and pull the covering closed. He would wheel the casket out to the cemetery, lower it into the grave, and cover it with dirt. Remember, it was outside the prison walls. But that night, when nobody was watching, he'd return, you know, pretending to do more work on the cemetery, and dig up the casket and set her free. Late one night, the bell tolled. The woman crept down to the workroom. It was dark, but she found the casket, lifted the lid, slipped inside next to the body, pulled the cover over, and waited. Sure enough, a few hours later, she felt the casket being rolled toward the gravesite. She smiled as the casket was lowered into the hole. She heard the clumps of dirt hitting the casket and covering her up. She had done it. She was outside the prison wall. She could barely contain her excitement. Silence followed as she waited in the dark. Time began to drag. Hours passed, then more hours. Finally, she began to worry. She broke out in a cold sweat. Where was that old man? What was keeping him? Can you imagine the emotions that would have coursed through her? In a moment of panic, she reached into her pocket and took out some matches. She lit one. She glanced at the corpse next to her and saw that it was the old man himself who had died that night. Her only hope lay buried right next to her. The lesson for you and me is obvious. This woman had placed her hope in another human who she sincerely thought would be able to save her, but he went to his grave and ended up taking her with him. Friends, every single religious leader in history is in his grave right now. Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad, and everyone else except one. Just one. Jesus Christ. His tomb is empty because he had the power of God to overcome the grave. 
The reason this is hard to believe is that it only happened once. But friends, because Christ was God in the flesh, it only needed to happen once. So let me ask the real question, who are you going to put your hope in to help you overcome your grave? The desire for eternal life is a uniquely and universal human thing. Animals don't have that. We all have hope. We want to have hope for that. We at least hope maybe. Who are you going to put your hope in to help you overcome your grave? You've heard some of the evidence about Jesus. Go ahead. Do what Sir Lucku did. Do what uh, Lee Strobel did. Look at the evidence yourself that that's what you need. You decide, but I suggest you hurry up about it since your eternity is in the balance. And please keep in mind the image of that helpless, buried alive woman while you ask yourself this question. Who is the only one, the only one who has evidence behind him who offered, who promised to give me hope for my eternity. The Bible says, for if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you're made right with God. Throughout the Bible, faith is how we're justified before God. And it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. This is not about what your parents did or what was done for you before you even knew what was happening. This is not about any particular church. This isn't about your spouse or anyone in your family. This is about you. Today can be the day you step out on your faith, the day you give your life to Christ in response to who he is and what he has done for you. If you'd like to respond to his gift with repentant faith, then just pray with me. If everyone would just... If you're comfortable, just bow your heads. Just close your eyes for the sake of being able to focus for a minute and just think about what you've heard today for a moment. Think about the times when I'm just going to believe that God has reached out to you. How did you respond? How are you going to respond today? God is spirit and he's here. He's drawing people to himself. I remember it. I remember it. I was very young, but I remember it. And I said, yes. And my life has never been the same. What will you say today? Would you say yes to Jesus today? What does it mean? I don't know what I'm saying. Well, I'll tell you, it means that he's going to be your Savior and he's going to be your Lord. And you're going to learn what it means to follow him over time. But first you have to surrender. You've got to turn. Would you do that right now? Would you respond to him with what we call repentant faith? Turning away from all of our, we think we're so smart. Will you turn away from it? Just say, I don't know anything, really. I need God. I'm willing to throw it all in on that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead and he promised I could rise from the dead if I believe in him, yes to that. Would you do that today? 
I'm one who believes that if you have that kind of faith, God is the one who will change your heart. God is the one who will grow your faith. God is the one who will disciple you and cause you to follow him. He will complete the work he starts. But you've got to take a step. You've got to respond. Would you just tell him yes? I'm not going to ask you to walk the aisle today like we used to. Wouldn't hurt. But guess what? I'm not going to do that. But if you've given your life to Christ today, if you've responded to him, I hope you will let me know. You can use that communication card. You can come talk to me. You could talk to one of our other pastors if you know who they are. You could email me. Email dresser in the bulletin. So I can just know. I'd love to be, rejoice with you. Maybe talk about next steps. God, thank you for saving me. I pray that you saved someone else today. We know that you want to, that you love us. Help us to follow through. You're worth it. God, if we really believe that you came down to this earth and died on a cross for our sins, it's not going to just be, that's going to change everything if we really believe it, if it's real faith. So I'm praying for those today that may have made this decision, that it moves forward in great power and strength and that their life is never the same. Thank you for the testimonies to that effect that are in this room, so many. God, bless this rest of this day. We celebrate Easter. Jesus, you are risen. Thank you, Lord, for being real and alive and not just something we study about, but someone who is here in spirit with us today. You sent your spirit, the spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit. You are here. And we want to live our lives in your presence. Change us. Help us to make a difference in this town, in this region in the world as your church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.